Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on page 404, partway through chapter 38. And the section heading is Khan Avon. I uh, asked you to be patient. Sometimes I trip over my words, but let's enjoy the words of Joseph Smith III. Enjoy. In order to take an early train, we arose betimes next morning, partook of a hearty breakfast, and then parted with our genial hosts, Brother Clark and his wife. The daughter and her husband accompanied us to the station, others of the family group joining us en route to bid us farewell as we took train to Carnarvon in the north of Wales. We had intended to stay overnight there with Sister Lloyds and her son, Captain Robert, but discovered that the latter was absent on a voyage and that a letter which awaited us informed us that Brother Frank Swan of Birmingham had made appointments for us in Dublin. So after a pleasant meal with the Lloyds, we made a few calls, one being to administer the laying on of hands to an aged Sister Williams, a relic of the old-time faith, patiently awaiting the call of the Powell Reaper. Prior to lunch, however, we visited Carnarvon Castle, an interesting type of castle which succeeded those of the Roman occupation period. The outer walls were almost intact, but only ones, but only one or two portions of the building itself were fit for occupancy. In one of these suits lived the family of the caretaker, and the other, notwithstanding the castle was a possession of the crown, was used by a, a Masonic fraternity. The old structure was built in 1282 and in it Edward II, the first Prince of Wales, was born in 1284. Within these ancient walls, the unfortunate king, after an inglorious reign and a crushing defeat by Robert the Bruce of Brannock Burn, was incarcerated by his wife and subsequently at her command done to death. Even in its decay, it was an imposing structure, having once had wonderful facilities for defensive warfare. We could but imagine its grander aspects in the heyday of its glory, when it would be aglow with the glitter and pomp of military and regal occupation. Next heading, the Irish Channel and Dublin. About two in the afternoon, we left Carnarvon for Holyhead, Going to going in the rain and the storm via Mena Tubular Bridge. At Holyhead, we embarked on the Cambria, a very fast and finely appointed steamer of the London and Northwestern Railway Company's steamship line. It was a ride of 64 miles across the stormy water to Dublin. And how can I describe that journey? One of the sailors told Brother Evans it was one of the roughest voyages across the Irish Sea they had known that season. The vessel was a small one, running in the interests of the company as a raid against the competition of a line established by some venture, some financiers, the fare having been radically reduced to a very nominal sum. The captain waited a bit after the heavy rain came, up in hopes it would clear but finally despairing of that out we went into the heaving seas the boat like a thing of life would rush at the wind and waves rolling and pitching into 
and over the high and still higher rolling billows, many of which would strike the bows with sufficient force to throw the spray over every portion of the deck. Brother Rushton kept us Brother Rushton kept up a brave front, keeping on deck most of the time, occasionally going down to commiserate with our kind hearted, tender stomached Canadian brother who from the moment we passed from the shelter of the harbour into the open sea, had to remain below. There he lay prostrate on one of the bunks in the cabin, striving to shut out all sight and sound of a seafaring life, arising only to pay full and overflowing tribute to that marine majesty who bears the trident. Needless to say, the sufferer cared little for human sympathy, just then and a good deal less for spoken commiseration, and kind brother Rushton, concluded to leave him to his devotions coming up from the cabin that good man walking a bit unsteadily himself slipped on the wet and slimy deck and fell forward rolling into the scuppers where the sights and sounds of others who were frankly sick proved his final undoing and suddenly acceding to the demands made upon him he cheerfully scudded to the row and paid his tribute direct to the fishes all these all this turbulent time, while my young brothers were finding life so uncomfortable, I was enjoying to the full the sight of majestic storm and the rolling pitch of a vessel, to whose vagaries I found little trouble in, trouble in adjusting myself, holding on to a stauchion to avoid being thrown into the scuppers or against the row. I thoroughly enjoyed a unique sensation of riding the storm. I was glad when Brother Rushton, soon rallying, could join me, and become an appreciative and jolly observer of all that was going on aloft and below. Before reaching harbour, the storm abated, and upon entering the smooth waters of the estuary of the Liffey, Brother Evans came on deck, pale and wan, but determined gamely to renew the conflict if necessary, and I confess to a feeling of exulting happiness in realising that I had triumphantly crossed the Irish Channel in a storm without being sick. We made our way to the Atkins Hotel in Dublin, where Brother Swan had arranged for our entertainment. Needless to say, we were all ready for a good rest in a place where things would stay put and the walls, floors and ceiling remain stationary. The next day, it was August the 27th, we spent from early morning until late afternoon in taking in the sights of Dublin. We visited the celebrated Phoenix Park and stood upon the spot where Lord's Cavendish and Burke were assassinated, May the 16th, 1882. This park, a magnificent one, was used as a public playground and was well used. During our visit, we were painfully reminded that Ireland was but one of the dependencies of England and that notwithstanding all the boasts of liberty, it was still only a military province governed by a Lord Lieutenant and an armed constabulary force whose presence was constantly in evidence in the bands of armed men who passed to and fro. We made a visit to the locality of Donnybrook Fair, celebrated in nursery law. A horse show was in progress, but we passed by, content with hearing the shouts of spectators and the strains of martial music from the band. Next heading, a disagreeable trip. At five in the afternoon, after the purchase of a few Bog oak, so bog oak souvenirs, inexpensive but interesting, we left for Belfast by train, having a pleasant run 
and arriving in due time at Robinson's Hotel, where we took quarters for the night. We wanted to do Belfast till the next morning, but rain came pelting down early and kept it up at intervals all day. When we boarded the steamship Adda in mid-afternoon, we felt we had been deprived of seeing much of interest. That ship, sorry, that trip from Belfast to Glasgow was one of the most miserable. It has been my misfortune to endure. The boat was owned and run by G and J Burns Company, and it would seem it was used more for the purpose of gathering in the shekels than to furnish decent and comfortable accommodations for travellers. Imagine being six and seven hundred men, women and children crowded upon an open deck with cabin accommodations and shelter for barely one third that number and all exposed to a pelting rain with scarcely a dry spot available on deck or in cabin. Add to this imagination the further picture of the majority of these people being seasick with all the unfortunate and disagreeable consequences and incidents, and you may have a faint notion of the situation. Brother Evans and Brother Rushton wore waterproof coats, and I found shelter, more or less under an umbrella, facing the stiff breeze created by the motion of the vessel, as it was driven forward by powerful engines at a rapid rate. I went below only when the rain came down in two great quantities to be withstood. I recall yet with indignation and disgust the spectacle of human greed and selfishness that boats and its inadequate accommodations presented. There was a bar and a refreshment stand in a conspicuous location and at the first of these there was a constant line of patrons. This resulted in an exhibition of a motley lot of intoxicated men and women before the voyage was ended. I may add, to the credit of the strange company thrown together under such unpleasant circumstances, there seemed ever predominant the best of good humour, with the exception of one little episode when a jolly Scotchman, resenting the alleged interference of another, wanted to show fight. I heard nothing to indicate irritation or ill-humour over the situation. Neither was there swearing nor loud and boisterous language. A little amusement was created by a coterie of musicians with an organ, a violin and a cornet, to whose lively airs some half-intoxicated picnickers tried to dance. Next heading, Glasgow. It was fortunate under these circumstances that the sea was smooth so that none of our little party was affected by mal de mer, even Brother Evans sticking it out on deck. We reached Ardrossan at 9.30 in the evening and taking train were soon landed at the station in Glasgow. There we were met by brethren Joseph Arbour and John Thorburn, our active young missionaries. Brother Rushton went to, on to Hamilton, his home, which was but a few miles away, while Brother Evans and I were taken to the house of Brother Thornby, Thorburn. The next day, Saturday, we had a pleasant gathering and bountiful dinner at the home of Brother Henry Macpherson, where we were joined by brethren Rushton and wife, Thornburn and wife, Arbour and wife, Munro and wife, Hepburn and Wilson. Brother Macpherson was the son of Brother Colin Macpherson, perhaps the principal labourer in the building up of the Brooklyn branch. The brother who was so unfortunately killed in a railway accident when travelling to a conference in Fall River, Massachusetts, 
some years before. The son Henry had been baptised when young and was still in the faith, a cordial, genial man. His wife was a Baptist but lacked nothing in the way of genuine hospitality and welcome and attended our meetings in the hall. After the meal, numbers of other saints came in and a social time was enjoyed with the usual speeches of welcome and response, songs, music and recitations. Sunday's early prayer service at Brother Thornburn's was followed in the afternoon by a preaching service in Baronial Hall, which was occupied by the saints for meetings. Brother Evans was the speaker at that time. I followed in the evening. At one of these meetings, we met Brother Pratt of Kelty. He was once for many years a citizen in Boone, Iowa, and I last saw him at a reunion in Logan. I was pleased to see him again. The next evening, services were held in St. James Hall and were attended by quite a large number of non-members in response to some judicious advertising. Among these were Elder Eccles of Utah and three of his ministerial corps. Before the services began, he came and introduced himself to me and we engaged in conversation. He seemed to be quite friendly and expressed regret. Sorry, I got interrupted with a phone call. I'm going to have to go back over one part of it. Among these elders, among these were Elder Eccles of Utah and three of his ministerial corps. Before the services began, he came and introduced himself to me and we engaged in conversation. He seemed to be quite friendly and expressed regret that there was cause for difference between the reorganised church and the one in Utah. Brother Evans followed his brilliant sermon on the text and it shall come to pass that at even time it shall be light with a brief but very clear exposition of the matters on which those differences rested. This presentation was so efficient and profitable that it won from Elder Eccles the statement that he had never heard the case reviewed in that light before and felt it to be a very strong position. September the 1st, we visited some of the prominent places of the city, including the art gallery and the chief business houses. Another day, too, was spent in sightseeing, but this time we went into the Scottish Highlands, going by train to Ballock Pier and thence by boat to Ardloo, passing Luss, Ivensnade and Tarbet, different landings on the lakes. The early morning was misty, but by ten o'clock he had cleared some, which gave us a chance to more fully appreciate the beauties of the upper portion of Loch Lomond. Shortly after noon, however, it began to rain, and we were glad to seek the shelter of the cabins in the boat, which soon started on its return trip. We had gathered buttercups, asters, thistle and heather, sprigs of which we sent home in letters to our own lasses, as visible evidences of this trip to the bonny, bonny banks of the celebrated lake. I cannot forbear to mention in closing the relation of this excursion that notwithstanding we paid our fare from Gar Glasgow to Ardlow by rail and boat, we had to pay extra for passing over the approach to the boat, two pence, four cents being charged just for the privilege of going ashore over the platform. This tribute to greed was politely termed peer duty and seemed to us a rather unfortunate exhibition of Scotch 
canniness on the part of either the company or the persons who owned the land at the head of the lock. Brother Evans kicked rather strenuously, but as the dockkeeper was only an employee and had probably heard the like before, it made lo made little or no impression. My memories of Glasgow are very pleasant, and though our stay was short and mainly for missionary purposes to supplement the labours of Brethren Arbour and Thurborn, we managed to see quite a bit of the historical city. Even now, after eleven years, I recall with pleasure several incidents of the visit. One was a casual inspecting hour of the ship building yards, either on the Clyde River or one of its estuaries where a monster iron vessel was in process of construction. I noted a large number of men at work on the great steel keel, with its one end sharp and pointed for the prow and the other arranged to hold the steering apparatus. The men were welding these plates together with hot rivets thrown to them by assistants. They stood on a platform built along the sides of the vessel and I watched them fascinated for quite a while as they worked with clock-like position of movement, the red-hot rivets being put rapidly in place, their smooth heads on the outside. Next heading, Bothwell Castle. From Glasgow in to Hamilton was but a matter of seven and one half pence and a very pleasant ride through green valleys and busy villages marts of trade and industry hamilton is a mining town of sixty five thousand inhabitants the mines pay a royalty of a shilling twenty four cents per ton twenty two hundred and forty pounds to the estate of the duke of hamilton who has a residence not far from bothwell we did not visit the seat of this English lord for being in residence, that is, at home on the estate. No visitors were allowed. When the family is absent, on certain days visitors may be escorted through the mansion by the caretaker. One day a partly one day a party consisting of Brethren Thorburn, Arbour and Rushton and their wives, Brethren Anderson, Munro, Evans and myself visited Bothwell Castle. This edifice was made famous by Miss Jane Porter in her popular book, Scottish Chiefs, in which the patriotism and, hero and heroic deeds of Sir William Wallace, Robert the Bruce and others are so well portrayed. It is noticeable, or it is notable, for its connection with the infamous Earl of Bothwell, who became the husband of the unfortunate Mary Queen of Scots, after the death of Darnley, her second consort. The castle was in ruins, though the towers still standing gave mute but striking evidence of the strength and magnificence of this stronghold in its balm in its palmy days, the days of feudal occupancy and intern sign strife. It stood on a high hill facing the Clyde River, which here made a straight run past the castle and with a turn to the right gave a beautiful view from the hill the scene must have been especially grand from the heights of the towers visitors were warned not to climb upon the crumbling wall about the place for it might have proved dangerous from the lodge gates to the castle was a quarter of a mile drive a thick wood hiding the building from sight until a turn in the path brought it suddenly to view between the ruins and the road there was a modern mansion 
the garish simplicity and frailty of which afforded to emphasise the vivid contrast between the days when castles were kept by sword and brawn and those when peace have its victories as well as war. Since those early days of strife, the influence of law keeps safe the Englishman's simple doors, nestling fearlessly by the side of the strongly guarded habitation of the feudal lord. On the bank of the Clyde, near the castle, was a stone seat said to have been frequently occupied by the unhappy queen, pensively meditating upon her griefs and their causes, married in youth to the Dauphin of France, a widow at nineteen, married to Darnley, the father of her son James I, again widowed by a death which was partly charged against Bothwell, to whom later, either by force or intimidation, she was compelled to be married. The lady did, indeed, have much cause to be sad and weary of life. Bothwell shared her rule of the kingdom, grossly mistreated her, and finally, in the hour of her adversity, when Scottish nobles gathered to depose her, abandoned her, seeking refuge at the court of Elizabeth of England. She was imprisoned for many years and then beheaded at Thotheringay. Curiously, by some irony of fate, or through the grim humour of her son James I, a splendid monument in her honour stands in Westminster Abbey, near one of the similar magnificence erected by the same king in honour of that Elizabeth, whose hand signed the warrant order for the death of this most unfortunate Mary. It was said that the rooms occupied by that beautiful and gifted woman contain many reminders of the saddest epoch in Scottish history. Raised in luxury, gracious in mind and lovely in persons, educated in France, wife at 16 and widow at 19, sovereign for nine years, widow again through the violent death of a man whom she may have loved but could not esteem, enforced mate of an unscrupulous and litigious man, deposed and banished, and the bauble of rule taken from her, eighteen years a prisoner and beheaded at forty-five. Who cannot see in this story the truth of the saying, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Next heading, side trip to Edinburgh. On Saturday, under the guidance of Brother Ruston, Brother Evans and I visited the capital city of Scotland, a capital whose parliament and centre of rule are located in the great city of many cities, London of England. Edinburgh, usually called Edinburgh, was by far the most beautiful city we saw in the old world. The view from Edinburgh Castle, a huge fortress of stone built on a rocky crag overlooking the city on all sides was one of great beauty of one of great beauty and grandeur. The city itself was small in comparison with some others I have known, but not so large even as Toronto or Pittsburgh. It lay compactly in the historic vale which once had known the rude altars of Rome. Besides its great castle, it had the interesting relic Holyrood Palace. Our first objective was the castle, nor will the impressions made by what we saw there soon fade from memory. 
there was the banqueting hall also used for the assemblies of the chiefs of the clans as they met to decide questions affecting the state there were relics of the warlike scots through many ages from the primitive arrow to the gun caisson on which the body of queen victoria made a sad pilgrimage through the city there was the huge fireplace with its evidences of ancient hospitality and good cheer while hung thickly on the walls about were swords picks lances pistols guns wall pieces and other accessories to the trade of hand-to-hand strife speaking loudly of the bloody scenes which characterised the reigns of earlier scottish kings we looked through the window from which the duke of argyll escaped we saw the little room in which mary's son was born and the window through which while yet a child he was lowered and taken to a place of safety to become afterward james i of england and successor to several jameses of scotland we climbed to the ramparts whence a marvellous view of the city was obtained nearby were the military barracks and we saw some of the soldiers in the characteristic dress of the highland regiments skirts kilties bonnets plaids even naked knees we saw the regala of the scottish sovereigns the crowns and jewels the sceptre of office and the sword of state with its jewelled hilt reflecting as we gazed it seemed a rather melancholy fact that these were about all that is left of the royalty and pomp of scotland some of whose kings made such vigorous and blood-stirring history from the castle we went to the uh, uni versity a path downhill all the way by land but in moral and intellectual progress decidedly uphill it was located but a short step past the landscaped gardens planted in a one-time moat or lake fronting the castle on the hill as i gazed on the magnificent buildings comprising this palace of learning justly celebrated throughout the world i could but think of our own modest little graceland college and felt gratified to reflect that the latter though small and obscure might still be privileged to turn out many men of honour and true integrity truly and noblest monuments to learning possible to conceive we passed st giles church in which Jeanie geddes once held her stall at the bishop presiding over a council which was taking measures to introduce the liturgy into the kirk a vigorous if not righteous protest against heretical blasphemy when we came to the home of that sturdy presbyterian john knox it must needs be that my companions should cross the street and enter in order to say afterwards that they had stood in the house of that protester i content i contented myself with standing in the street below and looking at its exterior which i thought partially showed the cranky side of the nature of that irate religious bigot who in his day was a standing menace and source of irritation to queen mary if the inside was like the outside it surely it it surely formed a gloomy relic of a gloomy theology which ought to have died when john knox himself was buried 
From these places, we went to Holyrood Palace and the ruins of the Abbey. The history of the latter includes a succession of building and destroying, restoration and destruction. The walls which remained plainly showed that the hands of warlike fiends or wandering marauders had been busy with faggot and hammer. A portion of the palace was being renovated for use as an occasional residence for present royalty. Here we saw much of grave interest to a visitor from the Western Republic. In the portrait gallery hung pictures of a long line of Scottish kings from David I to the last one, James VI, who by hereditary claim became also King of England as James I. I did not have time to think, to look at and examine as closely as I should have liked these painted faces, for I should have enjoyed trying to form an estimate of the moral worth of each one, according to the impressions received as I gazed. I lingered longest before the splendid portrait of the beautiful and ill-fated Queen Mary, whose tragic history had always excited my pity and commiseration. I saw the room of Lord Darnley and various rooms occupied by the unfortunate Queen, sitting room, dressing room, bedchamber and even the supping room in which she used to have her meals. It was in this room she was sitting at table with a companion or two, one of whom was the Italian musician Rizzio of the history but whose name is given in the records of the palace as Riccio. When the conspirators beheaded Sorry, when the conspirators, headed by Lord Ruthven, rushed up the private stairway and assisted by Lord Darnley, who held Mary, accomplished the death of the secretary Rizzio by striking a dagger into his throat, the knife of the ruffian reaching its victim over the shoulder of the Queen herself. The murderous crew then dragged the bleeding man through the Queen's apartments, finishing their dastardly deed at an angle of the wall near the head of the main stairway. Recalling these facts, it was with a feeling of awe that I stood in that room where the little supper table had been so suddenly overturned by the treacherous assault, paused for a moment on the spot where the victim fell or where he died after receiving those fifty-six cruel wounds. My familiarity with the details of this historical murder and the operation of my rather lively imagination combined to make the scene there enacted seem almost real and present as I gazed at the mute walls, floors and furnishings which had actually witnessed them. The abbey, with its broken and battered walls, its roofless corridors and gravestone floor from which rain and snow, heat and cold and the wear of many feet through many years, had almost obliterated inscriptions and ornamentation, told a sad tale of departed glory, a fitting place to sit on a gloomy November day, for instance, and reread Gray's Elegy. A refreshing meal in a tidy eating room, a ride up the estuary to the celebrated bridge over the Frith of Forth, and a ride back to Hamilton filled up the remainder of the day. We tried to visit a brother black who resided in Edinburgh, but failed, being informed he was absent from home. Next heading, services at Hamilton. At Hamilton, we held preaching meetings twice on Sunday in the Victoria Hall, usually occupied by our people, and some prayer sessions. Not many came to hear us, but those who did were very thoughtful and attentive. 
a steady rain and the fact that there was a festival gathering of some sort in another hall in the same building made our services a secondary consideration as far as non-members were concerned. The Hamilton branch was in charge of Brother Walter Browning, ably assisted by Brother Robert Munro and a band of members which, while not numerous, seemed very faithful and devoted. Most of them were workers in the mining industries, of which coal and salt seemed chief, if I remember correctly. At the time of our visit, the salt mines were deserted, for there had been a strike of the workers and the Duke in control, refusing to grant the request of the union, had simply ordered the keys, turned in the gate locks and paid no further attention to the workmen or their demands. My readers may be interested in a report of my visit to Hamilton, which appeared in the Hamilton Herald of September the 12th, and is here presented. Hamilton was this week honoured with a visit from the President of the Reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mr Joseph Smith, the famous son of a still more famous father. On the evenings of Sunday and Monday last, Mr Smith addressed largely attended meetings in the Victoria Hall, and the presence of the head of the church was naturally regarded as an event of considerable importance by the Latter-day Saints in Hamilton and District, relieving, sorry, believing that an interview with the son of the famous prophet of Mormonism would not be devoid of interest to our readers, a representation or a representative of the Hamilton Herald waited upon Mr Smith at the close of the meeting on Sunday evening and found a white-haired pleasant-faced, quiet-mannered old gentleman of venerable aspect who welcomed him with the utmost cordiality. I shall be very glad to tell you anything you want to know, said Mr Smith, when the Herald man made his errand known, for we caught the fullest investigation. I sometimes think there is not enough investigation in these days, otherwise the claims of our church would be more widely known. In the course of a pleasant chat, Mr Smith informed our reporter that this was his first visit to Great Britain. Indeed, it was the first occasion on which he had left the continent of North America. His responsible duties as head of the church having prevented him from travelling further afield. He reached London on June the 25th last and has spent the interval in visiting the various congregations of Latter-day Saints through England and Wales, Glasgow and Hamilton were the only places that he visited in Scotland, but he expected to take a run through to Edinburgh before he started for home on Tuesday. Are you satisfied with the condition of the congregations which you have visited, Mr Smith? Yes, I find our work in pretty good condition everywhere. I've been with a possible exception with or two. While the congregations are mostly small, they are quite active and doing well. I am quite satisfied on the whole with the state of the church in this country. Our church now contains upwards of 400 congregations, numbering altogether about 50,000 members in actual communion. In actual communion. Besides this country and America, we have congregations in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Sandwich Islands and the Society Islands. I understand, Mr Smith, that the church was originally founded by your father. 
The church was organised by my father and others on the 6th day of April 1830 in the state of New York. In 1844, my father was killed at Carthage, Hancock County, Illinois, whereupon the church became divided and a considerable number of the members went to Utah. There, under President Brigham Young, they formed what is now known as the Mormon Church. A great many others, however, including my mother's family, refused to accept the doctrine which he taught of plural marriage or polygamy, and those who remained as members of the church, believing that they had rights on their side, met together and reorganised the church, calling it the Reorganised Church of Jesus Christ for Latter-day Saints. I became connected with the movement in 1860, was chosen to preside over it, and have acted as president ever since. We are not affiliated or connected in any way with the Utah Mormons. It may interest your readers to know, however, that the Mormon president, Joseph Fielden Smith, is a cousin of mine. As distinguishing us from our believers in the scriptures, we believe in what is called present revelation, viz. that wherever the gospel is taught, there is the saint spirit of revelation with the believers. This, of course, involves the proposition that there are prophets, seers and those who receive manifestations or spirit power. On the other hand, the ordinary believer accepts the idea that these things do not now exist, but that they ceased with the apostles. How do you like this country, Mr Smith? Well, I have not yet formed what you might call specific conclusions. I like the country very much. I don't see how anyone could help that. It has the advantage of age. Your roads are splendid and I have been very much stu struck with the solid solidity of your buildings, which is bound to impress a visitor from a new world like America, where everything is just temporary and where buildings are mostly composed of wood. With the manners of the people in this country, continued Mr Smith, I have been very well pleased. True, I saw a little roughness in Glasgow and here, but not so much as I had been led to expect. I have not heard any swearing or loud talking and personally I have been treated politely on the street and everywhere else. Please tell me something about yourself now, Mr Smith, ventured the herald man. There is very little in my career that would interest you, replied the venerable president with a quiet smile, for my life has been an extremely uneventful one. I was 70 years of age in November last and have been president of the Latter-day Saints... For 43 years, I have witnessed all the important events in the advancement of art and industry since the opening of the 19th century. I remember when steam was applied as a motive power in railways and steamboats, and many other momentous inventions have been brought out in my day. I have baptised in both the great oceans, the Atlantic and Pacific, as well as in all the principal rivers of America. I never resided in Utah, but I have preached up and down the Mormon territory at different periods since 1876. Our church has its headquarters at Lamoni, Decantia County, Iowa, where in a town having a population of 1,600, we have a congregation of 1,360. I must repeat how pleased I am with the spirit of fairness which I have met both in Scotland and in England. Mr Smith left Hamilton on Tuesday and sails for New York on the 19th of this month. 
and so our stay in Hamilton closed. While loath to part from brother Rushton, his family and the saints there, time whose foretop we had been striving to catch kept busy with the hours and we had to move on. It was in the morning of Tuesday, September 8th that we left for London, which we reached in the evening. Brother Thomas J. Sheldon meeting us at the station and by means of the Underground Railway conducting us to his home. Next, um, heading closing days. The evening of our return to London, we attended a religio session presided over by the able young brother, H. Fletcher. There was one well-written paper, I remember, prepared and read by Brother F. Furness on the subject of the laying on of hands. Solos, solos and speeches followed by Brethren Gerard Bradshaw and others, including the visitors from America. We had some interesting sightseeing trips during the week. These included a walk along the, Tem the River Thames, a bus ride across the famous London Bridge to the Elephant and Castle, and thence by another bus across Westminster Bridge to the Abbey. There we spent a profitable hour or two wandering about under the chaperonship or the chaperonage of a cleric in the robe of the Church of England. He named to us, along with other things, the tombs of some 15 members of the royalty of Britain, whose monuments crowned, crowned the various chapels. Among these, I was particularly interested in the two I've mentioned, Mary, Queen of Scots and Elizabeth, who had the former beheaded. In proximity, they rest the costly and elaborate memorials, a seeming travesty, upon the venality and super, super, superiority, sorry, I don't know how to say that word, of the times and reigns of those sovereigns. Our ministry among the good saints of London and environs brought us pleasant experiences. Services were held in various places, including Enfield, where Brethren, Judd, Kemp and others made our stay very pleasant. There was a young man of some promise there named Joseph Smith and two or three others from whom we felt sure good reports would be heard in the future. One day we visited that staunch old soldier of the cross, Brother Thomas Bradshaw. We found him well and cheerful and ready to tell of the faithful labours of, of our predecessors in the Mesham. Briggs, Forscutt, Patterson... Gillen, Griffiths, Pitt, Smith and others, with all of whom he had had acquaintance, if all would speak of the missionaries in such kindly terms as did this veteran, many an anxious, an anxious hour might be saved and much scandal and heartbreak. Visits made to the British Museum and the South Kensington Museum under the care of brother J.D. Howell brought much of interest and profit. We thought the smaller one surpassed in attractiveness its lordy competitor, the British one. But notations indicate that we lunched that day at a restaurant called Peace and Plenty. The odd names of London were quite amusing to me. We supped with brother Harold and there spent the night. He had an interesting family, wife, daughters and two boys. Among the places visited in these last busy days on English soil with the old curiosity shop said and said not to be connected 
with Charles Dickens' romances, the grave of Oliver Goldsmith, and a most entertaining trip to, Straf to Stratford, the home of Shakespeare and his sweetheart, Anne Hathaway. There was the church in which his body is buried, where the registry bears entries of his birth and death. Active preparations for our return voyage marked the closing days of our stay in London. Brother Sheldon and his good wife Ella did all they could possibly to possibly do to make our visit a happy and comfortable one, and many pleasant experiences resulted from their solicitous hospitality and guidance about the city. It was Saturday when we left for Southampton, where our steamer was docked. Reverend Sheldon, Howell and others came to the station to see us off. Brother Howell presented me with a copy of the book Sixty Years a Queen, which was a thoughtful and much appreciated gift. We were also given bags of fruit and other kindly attention from the pleasant friends we were leaving. The boat train to Southampton is one without stops, between and makes a quick transit over the intervening miles. At noon, safely aboard, we sat down to the first meal of our return voyage. I'm going to leave that there. Thank you for listening.